If you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up to 2 Corinthians 5. That's where we'll be at this morning. But before we, of course, get into the Word of God, we want to go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, Creator, our Lord and Savior, even in the midst of the eye of the storm, you are there for us, and we thank you. Thank you for this time that we've had to worship you, to glorify your name. We ask now as we go into the study of your word, may it be your words that are spoken and not mine. May you work in our hearts and our lives. Help us to see the way we need to be living differently. Father, I pray you would just open our eyes as we study your word today. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts to receive. May your word touch us in a mighty, mighty way today. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been going through a series entitled, Why Revival Tarries. And this morning, we're going to take a look at living in the light of eternity. Living in the light of eternity. What does that mean? You think about this. What what are you living for? Have you ever thought about that just a moment? What are you actually living for? Now, I can tell you as as a kid, I thought life was all about money. How many of you thought the same thing? Anybody think it was about money? I wanted to be a lawyer until I found out how much schooling they had to go to. Then I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and I found out they had to go to school longer. And then I thought I'd just be an accountant, because then at least I get to look at money. And then the Lord decided on preacher, because I don't have any money. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Um, But as a teen, as a teenager, I grew up. It was about that little girlfriend, right? You guys remember when you fell in love? Anybody remember that? And so you thought that that was what your life was about, that little girlfriend, little boyfriend, and you thought you were infatuated, so you called them and talked on the phone. And if you were back in the 80s like me, when you called a girl and you talked on the phone for two hours, your dad was yelling and screaming at you to get off the phone, you know? And of course, the little girl's daddy was screaming the same thing. You don't talk to boys on the phone. As a college student, I remember it was about getting a good job, right? It's about finding that place where I needed to fit in, that place where I would work. I wanted to get a good education so I could get a good job. As a newlywed, life seemed to revolve around your spouse. You know, you wanted to make sure you made them happy. But I would say as I've become a man, I realize that my life is all about Jesus. What are you living for? Where has your journey brought you? What is the most important thing in your life? Well, today we're going to talk about three stages to living in the light of eternity found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. The first stage we're going to see is living in the light of death. Look at verse 9. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. The word, therefore, labor is actually the word philotomiamai, which simply means we make it our aim. To esteem as an honor, it is, as the New American Standard says, our ambition. It's what we're living for. It's what we desire. It's who we want to be. What is your ambition? In Romans chapter 15 and verse 20, Paul makes a statement. He says, I desire not to build off of another man's foundation. 
Paul's desire when he was living was to go and start churches in areas where there had not been churches. Paul's desire was to go into areas where they had no presence of Christ and to begin a ministry there. That was his ambition. Our ambition, a lot of times we got to figure out what that is. What am I living for? What am I working for? What do I hope that by the time I die, I leave behind? What is my ambition? Now, you think about it. The idea is it's to make it our aim. Now, right now it's basketball season, and everybody knows what that means, right? The aim of basketball is to put the ball through the hoop, right? And when you shoot the ball, your goal is to make it through the hoop, have it go through the net, and you score two or three points. Now, here's the problem. When you play basketball, you know you throw up a lot of bricks, right? In Terry's case, a lot of air balls, but, you know... When you're shooting, your goal, your aim is to make it through the basket. Many of us treat the Christian life like that. We have a target and we're throwing up bricks in our Christian wall. We're not sure. We're just hoping to eventually hit it. You know, if we score 50%, you know, make 50% of our baskets, we're happy. We make 25%, you know, we're, we're a decent Christian. We make 10%, we're good with that. The problem is, is if we make it our aim, our goal is to hit it every single time time every single time you know what it takes to make a national championship team I should know this I'm from North Carolina we have a bunch of those you know what it takes to make a national championship team it takes you Tennessee fans be quiet for just a moment all right here's what it takes it takes a couple things ready for this it takes having the right pieces it takes having the right pieces. And you say, well, what do you mean by the right pieces? Well, it takes having the right players playing together. You can stick a Michael Jordan on every team and it won't always work. You have to have the right pieces, all the right players, all the right pieces of the puzzle. Not only that, but you also have to have the right strategy. You have to play to your team's strengths. In other words, what I mean by playing to your team's strengths is, is if you're a team that's known for getting it down low, then what do you do during the game? You get it down low. If you're known as a team that shoots three-pointers, then what do you do? You make sure you kick it outside and you start bombing those threes. You have a strategy. The third thing to make a national championship team is to execute said plan. It's to make it happen. Now, here's the thing about a Christian life. You want to have a national championship life, here's what it's going to take for you, having the right pieces in your life. You say, what do I mean the right pieces? Well, it's very simple. God has given us the disciplines in his word to show us what it takes to live the Christian life. Read the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Share the gospel with lost people. These are the things that God has called us to do. There are certain disciplines that if every Christian will participate in, they will begin to put the right pieces into their life. Well, what's their strategy? Well, it's real simple. My strategy and your strategy should be the same, to follow the will of God. Whatever God desires for my life, that's what I want to do. That's the strategy. The problem is, is we get off of the coach's strategy, off of God's strategy, when we begin to want to do things our way. Well, finally, guess what? We got to execute it. It's all well and good to come into church, and let's just be honest, it's all well and good to sit here on your pew and listen. But if this is all you're going to do, we're in trouble. You see, we've got to get up off of the pews and we have to go out in the community and be the hands and feet of Christ. We have to implement what we've been taught. We have to do what God has called us to do. The problem today is we have way too many couch potato Christians, right? 
We have too many couch potato Christians. We will sit there and engulf and engulf and engulf message after message after message. Here's the problem. If all you do is sit in your recliner and eat all day long and watch television and you never get up and you never exercise, what's going to happen? Somebody goes, fat. I heard a little kid, fat. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. We have a lot of fat Christians. Not fat physically, fat spiritually, okay? They eat and they eat and they eat, but they never exercise and put into effect what God has called them to do. That's not our aim. Our aim is to implement what God has called us to do. That's how we make a difference. That's how we let this life be a great death. Listen to what he says. Whether present or absent. Can you believe it? God talks about death in his word. Every one of us in here, you ready for this? I'm going to throw something out there that's just going to shock and surprise you. You're going to die. We're going to die. It's going to happen. What blows me away is that sometimes we as Christians, we fear death. Why would we fear death if we know that what we have in the next life is better than what we have here? If somebody came to you and offered to take your 1979 Pinto and give you a brand new Ferrari, how many of you would trade it in? Anybody have that Ferrari? I'll go buy a 1979 Pinto. You think about it. I mean, how many of us would not trade up? And if this life, if this life doesn't compare to that life and we trade up, why are we afraid of that? Why are we fearful that we might die? Well, here's the thing. The reason being is we're not living a good enough life to have a good death. Listen to some of these scriptures that Paul teaches us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Man, I want to live in such a way that I die a good death. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I think about it because I think about Paul's own words over in the book of Philippians. These, to me, are just so powerful, beginning in verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I want not. For I am in straight betwixt two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul says, I wrestle with it. I wrestle, why? Because if I live, I can do more for God. Man, if that's the reason why you want to keep living, that's a good reason to want to keep living. But if it's because you haven't seen everything you want to see, if it's because you haven't seen your children get married or you haven't seen grandkids yet, if, if that's what you're living for, you're missing the mark. 
If it's to do more work for God, it's to glorify his name, to expand his kingdom. That's a good reason to keep on living. To die is gain. Now, I'm going to tell you how to die a good death. Five years ago, my wife and I experienced some of the most horrific news you could ever get. Her mother called us up and said, I have cancer. We were broken. I mean, here we were. We had just moved to Alabama. My wife had just faithfully followed God to Alabama. And her mother has cancer. We were at their parents' house two to three times a week, eating dinner. I was mowing the yard, doing different things. And now we've moved away, and she has cancer, and we can't be there. And it just it, it killed my wife. Very hard on her. What's interesting is as the time progressed on, she did everything she could. She went and took the treatments, and she did everything she could during this time. And, and while she was going through this, I remember one day my wife, she talked to her mom, and she said, Mom, I just I don't understand why you and her mother said this to her she said Julie why not me she said if I go that means somebody else who we don't know if they're going to go to heaven or hell has more time to give their life to Christ so why not me that's how you die a good death you're not concerned because you know where you're going. You know what he has in store for you. But for others here, we don't know what is in store for them because we don't know if they've made that decision to follow Christ. We don't know if they have the hope of tomorrow. Because to be honest with you, if you ask people and they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you say, where are you going to go when you die? And they go, well, I hope heaven. I don't hope heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. I don't have to hope. I know because I have the promises and the assurances of God of where I'm going to be. Therefore, I can have joy in the midst of death where they have no peace. But I want to live in the light of death. I think about this other passage that Paul spoke of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Amen. You see, I have, and this is difficult at times, but I have buried from a one-month-old up to a lady that was 95 years old. And somebody asked me, they said, said Brother John, was, was burying that baby, was that the hardest funeral you've ever had to do? And I said, no, not at all. They said, what do you mean that wasn't a hard funeral? I said, I know where that baby's at. I know where that baby's at. I, that, that baby is in much better shape. The, the hardest funeral I've ever had to do is a funeral for somebody I knew didn't know Jesus, and I could not give the family any hope. All I could do was share Jesus with them and talk about Lazarus, and that rich man who was begging for them not to come with him. That's what I could tell them. Hope to give them hope for their life, not hope for the one that had already gone on. Man, I want to finish the race. You know, let's just be honest. How many of you get in the middle of your Christian race and you're running and you finally, you just get tired, you just give up, and you say, you know what, I just, I'm, I'm done. I just, I'm done running. I'm exhausted. And you never make it to the finish line. Now, you will finish your race. You will eventually die. It doesn't matter if you try to sit down in the middle of the race. You're eventually going to finish the race. The problem is, is you may not cross the finish line. You may not get to the end. You just disqualify yourself. 
I want to live in such a way that my death is meaningful. I want to live in such a way that when I die, I have made an impact in this world. That's what Paul was saying here when he said, whether present or absent. But not only do I want to live in the light of death, I also want to live in the light of life. He says that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. The idea of being accepted means to be well-pleasing. How many of you wish to please God? I hope you do. That's why we're in church, right? We want to please God. So we want to be well-pleasing. But it's got to be more, you ready for this? It's more than just coming to church to please God. There's a whole lot more to this process of what God desires in and through us. Romans chapter 12 helps us understand what is well-pleasing to God when it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You want to live a life that is well-pleasing unto God? The first thing he says is don't be conformed to this world. Don't look like everybody else. Don't watch what everybody else is watching. I know it's hard when somebody comes up to you and goes, man, I saw the the newest show on Netflix. And man, that, that show was awesome. And you go and you watch the first episode and it's using God's name in vain just like this. And you go... And then you go to your friends, but they watched it. And so you feel like, well, I got to finish watching it because I got to be able to talk about this at the water cooler, right? And so you put up with the trash just so you can meet with everybody and talk about that same show. Man, we got to be careful doing stuff like that. We're not to be conformed to this world, man. You start to hear something like that, it's called an off button, a power button. You hit it, you flip it off, and you say, I'm not putting that trash in my life. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. We don't need to be conformed. If you're standing by the water cooler and your friend's over there telling a dirty joke, don't sit there and do the hesitant, (laughs) walk away. Say, I'm not listening to that. I don't want to be like you guys. Sorry, I'm not going to listen to garbage. I'm not going to be a part of that. You see somebody talking about somebody else, walk away. Don't be a party to it. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be formed into their image. But it says be transformed. In other words, be different. Be something that they're not. That's how you are pleasing to God. You stand out. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, let it all be done to the glory of God. That's how to live a pleasing life. That everything you do is to glorify his name. Now every one of us grew up, right? And, and we, we all probably had the kind of a similar home some, all right? Some of y'all be like, no, I didn't have that home. Well, I had, I'll tell you, I was, I was actually a little bit spoiled. Anybody else in here willing to admit they were a little spoiled growing up? All right. I guess not, my life story is a little bit different. But I'll tell you, my mama was one of the hardest working housewives you would ever know. I'm going to tell you because when I, here's what would happen every morning. I would roll out of bed. I would fumble through my drawers, throwing stuff everywhere. I'd put my clothes on, make it down just in time to go catch the bus And when I would come home, you know what I found amazingly? My bed was made. All the clothes were put back. My dirty clothes were in the hamper, washed, put back in the drawers. My my floor was vacuumed and cleaned, and all my video games were put back in a neat little order. Now, because my mama was such a good mama, my daddy had to do something about that. 
My daddy was a contractor, so my daddy would take us out to the houses, and we had to go out there, and we would sweep up the sawdust from where they had cut wood. We would pile up all the trash. We would pick up the bricks that the brick masons had done work that day and put them in the front porch. We'd pick up the metal bands, and my dad would make us work and work and work out there in his houses. And if he didn't have any work at those houses, we mowed the yard, we washed the cars, or his favorite thing was we raked acorns. Anybody ever heard of acorns? They're acorns. But he was, they were acorns to him. You raked them up. He didn't want trees growing in his yard. And so we did all kinds of work. And my favorite job my father had us do, we mowed the woods. You laugh like that's not a real thing. We did. I mean, we had one of those mowers. That, anyways, if I wanted to please my parents, if I wanted to please my mother, what would I do? I would actually put my dirty clothes in the hamper and make my bed that morning. If I did that, my mom would have come to me and said, what are you wanting? She would have never believed it. But my dad, if I wanted to please my dad, here's what I would have done. I would have gone to the construction site where he, built, where he was building a house. I would have cleaned up, and I wouldn't have fought with my brothers because that was the thing that used to drive him crazy. We wouldn't have been throwing bricks at each other, pieces of wood at each other. We'd have just simply cleaned up, and we'd have got done in the time allotment. He said it would take us to clean up the house. And if we'd have gotten the truck, my dad probably would have said nothing. He probably would have just smiled and drove home. But it would have been well-pleasing to him. If I want to be well-pleasing to God, it's not about cleaning up my house. It's not about cleaning up and doing the things that my dad would want me to do. If I want to please God, there are a couple things I need to do. And Colossians tells me what those things are. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, listen to this verse. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's two things that God wants you to do to make him pleased. Number one, be fruitful. Be fruitful. Jesus came across a tree. He tells a story, came across this tree, and it had no figs. And what did he do? He cursed it. He cursed it, and it died there are many people out there that are living this kind of life they're unfruitful and you know what's going to happen to you you say well i went to church good for you well i i joined the church good for you i even got baptized good for you but where's the fruit where's the change where's the difference one of the greatest fruits that we as Christians can bear is telling others about Jesus and leading them to the Lord. And that's fruit you get to take with you for eternity. There's nothing greater. There's all kinds of fruit that God desires to bear in your life. And if we are fruitful, it is well-pleasing to God. But look at the second thing. It says then what? And to know him. To have knowledge of him. Isn't it amazing that the infinite God of all creation, your creator wants you to know him. And he gives you a way to know him. Can I tell you, how many of you guys have been married for 10 years or more? Anybody in here been married 10 years or more? Okay, good. All right. How many of you guys have been married at least five years or more? The ones that were, said they were 10 years or more, they didn't raise their hand with five years or more. Can y'all not do math? <laughs> We got less for five years or more. I don't know how that happened, but. Man, I'm going to try to help y'all for just a moment, okay? 
if you want to be well-pleasing to your wife, men, get to know them, right? Get to know them. If you all of a sudden speak something to them that they said just a week ago, they'll be amazed. Because they will not believe you listened. Why? Because you know them, right? And they know you. That's the problem. But you see, I know my wife. Can I tell you something? Just on a personal note, I hate musicals. Lay Miz is just short for lay miserable, right? <laughs> I'm not a fan of musicals. Now, my wife, that's her bread and butter. She loves them. One day I came in, I had tickets to Phantom of the Opera. I was king of the household that day. Why? Because I know her, and I knew she would enjoy that. If I know God, if I study his word and I get to know him on a more intimate relationship and I dig in deep to the word of God and I fellowship with God, guess what's going to happen? It's going to begin to transform my walk to where I begin to not only know about God, I begin to live like God. I begin to do the things of Christ in my life. And when I know him in that manner, it is well-pleasing to him. I want to live such a life that when I get to heaven, he looks at me and says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I don't care if anybody comes up and pats me on the back. I'm going to tell you, it's so funny. One of the preachers that was over here for the conference, he said, you know, one of the worst things we hear, you ready for this? And, and I, I might make somebody mad. They'll come up and pat you on the back and they'll go, that was a good sermon today, brother. You say, why is that a bad thing? It's not about me. I didn't do anything. If you think I did anything, you're wrong. I did nothing. I'm just a mouthpiece. It is all to his glory and his honor. It has nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. And one of the, the craziest things I used to hear all the time was this. Brother, you stepped on my feet today. Then I missed the mark because God was aiming for your heart, not your feet. God wants to change your heart. He wants you to be well-pleasing to him. It's not about pleasing the pastor. Please understand, you can make me happy, but I'm not God. It's not about making me look good. I, it's, I'm not God. I'm just a man. That's all I am. All I want to do is please him. All I want you to do is please him. It's all about giving him the praise and the honor and the glory that he deserves. I want to live that kind of life. So I want to live in light of death. I want to live in the light of life. And lastly, I want to live in the light of judgment. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. First off, I need you to understand there are two judgments in the Word of God. The judgment seat of Christ is reserved for Christians. There will be no lost people at the judgment seat of Christ. They will stand judgment at another judgment called the great white throne judgment. You will not be a part of that if you're a Christian. You'll be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because God already knows your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He doesn't have to check a book to know you're his. He knows when he wrote your name in there. 
He doesn't need a book to tell him that. When we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, it says we will appear before him. You need to understand how important this word is that sends for the word appear. It comes from the word phanero, to make manifest, to make clear, to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade. In other words, you're going to look like you. In fact, there may be some new revelation that maybe you didn't even know about yourself. But you're going to be laid bare. In other words, God is going to reveal the truth about you during the time of judgment. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 as it says it this way. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, even the very things you would hide in the dark, he's seen. The very words you spoke under your breath, he's heard. The very words that you thought in your mind, he knows. You will be laid bare. You won't be able to get up there at the judgment seat of Christ and go, but Lord, he'll go. There ain't no buts about it. There are no excuses. There are no reasons. You will be laid completely bare before God. And somebody says, well, I will talk to God and I'll tell him. You won't say a word. Not a word. You will be on your face before a holy God. And you will be judged and get this, judge for what? For the things done in the body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You say, but wait a minute, brother. The, the Bible tells me that all my sins are forgiven. Yes, they are. They absolutely are. God has forgiven your sins. He's talking about the work that you do for him in this world. So that means, think about this for a moment. If you've never done anything for God, that's bad. If he's told you, now you ready for this? This is the hardest part. If he's told you to speak to that person and tell them about Jesus, and brothers, I've done that. I will be judged for that. You realize that if God tells you to do something and you don't do it, that's a sin, right? It's called the sin of omission. We will be laid bare. In other words, God will know everything, every truth about us, every thought we've ever had, every word we've ever spoken, every deed we've ever done. We will stand before God, and we won't be able to deny it. Won't be able to deny it. I want to read this quote out of Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Tarries. And this is what spawned this message, this one paragraph. I want you to listen to this carefully. Oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. If we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God, if we did every act in the light of the judgment seat, if we sold every article in the light of the judgment seat, if we prayed every prayer in the light of the judgment seat, if we tithed all our possessions in the light of the judgment seat, 
If we preachers prepared every sermon with one eye on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time at all would liberate millions of precious souls. Every moment, every word, every action, thinking that if the next moment God showed up and we were judged, is that the last words you wanted to say? Is that the last action you wanted to have? Would you respond to that person that's ugly to you in that manner if you knew the next moment God was going to take you into eternity? If you knew that God was going to take your life, snuff it out right then and there? Every moment, every instant, every word living in the light of eternity, in the light of the judgment seat. Some people think that the judgment seat it's just going to be so simple and easy. You realize we're going to stand before a holy God. A holy, righteous, and perfect God. And his holiness and righteousness will radiate off of him. And your unholiness and unrighteousness will cause you to be on your face before him. And he'll reveal every action, every word, every thought, every deed, everything. If you knew that that were true, that tomorrow, if you knew you had one day, what would you do with it? If you knew you had one week left, what would you do with it? One month, one year, let's even go that far. Some people say, well, I'd make sure I'd take that vacation I've always wanted to take. Some people say, well, I'd go buy that car I've always wanted to buy. There's a lot of different things we might want to do. But I tell you, if I had one week left, I would spend as much time as I could with my wife and my kids. But I would also call every family member to make sure they knew Jesus before I left. I would call every friend, every acquaintance. I would make sure every person I ran into knew what I was getting ready to face and hope that they were ready for it themselves. But you know what else I'd do? I'd probably try to make sure when I call those people and say, you know, I also want to make sure, have I ever done anything wrong to you? Because if I have, I need to apologize. You see, what are you going to do if you live every moment thinking that the next breath could be your last? What will you do? Living in the light of the judgment seat. How are you 